Agnes Lyons, Chapter Four of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. I'm not disturbing you, father. No, dear, you never disturb me. He said, getting up from the typewriter and giving her his chair. But what is the matter? Nothing, at least nothing in particular. I got tired of the drawing room and thought I'd like to come and sit with you, but I've taken your chair. It doesn't matter. I can stand. I've been sitting so long. But no, father, I can't take your chair. I don't want to stop you from working. I thought I'd like to sit and watch you. Here, take your chair. I can get another. I can get one out of the butler's room. He won't mind just for once. He's a very particular man. But I'll tell him I took it for you. The major returned a moment after with a chair. He gave it to Agnes and resumed his place at the machine. I shan't be many minutes before I finish this lot, he said. Then we shall be able to talk. I promised to get them finished this evening. She had never seen a typewriting machine at work before, and admired the nimbleness with which his fingers struck the keys, and the dexterity with which he passed fresh sheets of paper under the roller. When he had finished and was gathering the sheets together, she said, "How clever you are!" I think I picked it up pretty quickly. I can do seventy words a minute. Some typists can do eighty, but my fingers are too old for that. Still, seventy is a good average, and I have hardly any corrections to make. They are very pleased with my work. I'll teach you. You'd soon pick it up. Will you, father? Then I should be able to assist you. We could sit together. You in that corner, I in this. I wonder if mother would buy me a machine. I could pay her back out of the money I earned, just like you. Your mother would say you were wasting your time. You've come home, she'd say, to go into society and not to learn typewriting. I am afraid she would, but father, there is no use my going into society. I shall never get on in society. Last night at Lord Chislehurst's. Yes, tell me about it. You must have enjoyed yourself there. Agnes did not answer for a long while. At last, she said, "There's something, father dear, that I must speak to you about. Mother thinks I ought to marry Lord Chislehurst, that I ought to make up to him and catch him if I can. She says that he likes very young girls, and that she could see that he liked me. But father, I cannot marry him. He is." No, I cannot marry him. I do not like him. I'm only sixteen, and he's forty or fifty. But that isn't the reason—at least, not the only reason. I don't want to marry anyone, and mother doesn't seem to understand that. She said, if that were so, she really didn't see why I left the convent. She was too intent on what she was saying to notice the light which flashed in the major's eyes. I said. Mother, I never wanted to leave the convent. It was you who wanted me home. No, she said, it was not I. It was your father. But now that you are here, I should like you to make a good marriage. Then she turned and kissed me. I don't want to say anything against mother. She loves me, I'm sure. But we're so different. I shall never understand mother. I shall never get on in society. I cannot, father dear. I cannot. I feel so far away. I do not know what to say to the people I meet. I do not feel that I understand them when they speak to me. I am far away. That is what I feel. I shall never get over that feeling. 
I shall not succeed, and then mother will get to hate me. I am so unhappy, father, I am so unhappy. Agnes dropped on her knees, and throwing her arms on her father's shoulder, she said, But father, you're not listening. Listen to me. I've only you. I'm thinking. Of what? Of many things. Poor father, you have a great deal to think of, and I come interrupting your work. How selfish I am. No, dear, you're not selfish. I'm very glad you told me. So you think you'll never get on in society. I don't think I'm suited for society. I'm afraid you think all society is like our drawing-room. How was it, father, that our drawing-room came to be what it is? A great deal of it is my fault, dear. When I lost my money I got disheartened, and little by little I lost control. One day I was told that I was paid for nothing I had no right to grumble. Your mother said, in reply to some question about me, that I was merely an expense. I believe the phrase was considered very clever. It went the round of society, and eventually was put into a play. And that is why I told you that money is everything, that it is difficult to be truthful, honorable, or respectable if you have no money. A little will do, but you must have a little. If you haven't, you aren't respectable. You're nothing. You become like me, a mere expense. I've borne it for your sake, dearest. For my sake, father, what do you mean? Never mind, best not to ask. My dearest daughter, I would bear it all all over again for your sake. But it is maddening work. It goes to the head at last. It makes one feel as if something were giving way there, he said, touching his forehead. It does indeed. But, father, you mustn't bear this any longer. Not for my sake. Father, no, not for my sake. You must find some way out of it. I have found a way out of it. It took me a long while, but I have found the way. There it is, he said, pointing to the typewriting machine. They don't suspect anything. Not they, the fools. They don't know what is hanging over their heads. I'll tell you. Agnes, but you must not breathe a word of it to anyone. If you did, they would take the machine from me, for they'd like me to remain a mere expense. As long as I'm that, they can do what they like. But as soon as I gain an independence, as soon as I am able to pay for my meals, he whispered, I mean to put my house in order. But you mustn't breathe a word. I'll never do anything, father, you ask me not to do. I shall be able to sweep out all those you don't like. There are too many men hanging about here. Tell me, father, do you like Lord Chadwick? The major's face changed expression. Have I said anything to wound you? she said, pressing his hand. No, dear, you asked me if I liked Lord Chadwick. I was thinking. Somehow it seems to me that I rather like him, though I have no reason to do so. He thinks me crazy, but so do others. I know that my conversation bores him. He always tries to get away from me, yet somehow it seems to me that I do like him. Is he a fast man, father? Is he like Lord Chislehurst? He is much the same as the other men that come here. I don't think he's a bad man, no worse than other men. Is he kind to you, dear? Tell me that. Do you like him? Yes, father. He and Mr. St. Clair are the men I like best here. 
"'But why is he here so much, father? He's no relation.' "'He has dined and lunched here every day for the last ten years. He's been an expense, too.' "'Mother said he is so poor that she has often to lend him money.' he should have spent some of the money she lent him on a typewriting machine and striven as i do to make an independence when i've got together a little independence when i can pay for my meals and my clothes you shall see none that you dislike shall ever come here dearest i'll put my house in order but that will take a long time father in the meantime what dear mother will want me to marry they shall not force you to marry they shall not ask you to do anything you do not like lord chiselhurst ought to be ashamed a man of his age to want to marry a young girl like you i will go and tell him so the major stood up he was pale and agnes noticed that his lips trembled no father she said do not go to him i do not know that he wants to marry me it is only mother's idea she may be mistaken you shall not be persecuted by his attentions lord chiselhurst is a gentleman father whatever his faults may be i feel sure when he sees that i do not want him that he will cease to think of me lord chiselhurst is not the worst who then is the worst who is it that you wish me to rid you of i don't wish you to be violent father but you might hint to Mr. Moulton that I do not wish that man. He, too, is merely an expense. I am sure, father, that it is not right of him to put his arms round me. He tried to kiss me. I was alone in the drawing-room, and he speaks in a way that I do not like. I don't know. I don't like him. He frightens me. Frightens you? That fellow! That fellow! Yes, he asks me questions. He never shall do so again. Is he in the drawing-room? Yes, but, father, you cannot speak to him now. There are people in the drawing-room. I don't care who's there. No, father, no, I beg you. Mother will never forgive me. Father, you mustn't make a scene. Father, you cannot go to the drawing-room in those clothes. And in desperate resolve, Agnes threw herself between the major and the door, pressing him back with both hands. They think me a sheep. I have been a sheep too long, but they shall see that even the sheep will turn to save its lamb from the butcher. I'll go to them, yes, and in these clothes. Agnes, let me go. I want you to speak to Mr. Moulton. But not now. This is not the time. He tried to push past her, but she resisted him, and sat down in front of his typewriting machine, pale and exhausted, the sweat purling his bald forehead. She tried to calm him, and to induce him to understand the scandal he would make if he were to go down to the drawing-room dressed as he was. But her words did not seem to reach the Major's brain. He only muttered that the time had come to put his house in order. Agnes answered, Father, for my sake, not now. But he must obey the idea which pierced his brain and before she could prevent him he slipped past her and opened the door oh father don't for my sake please his lips moved but he did not speak i will not make a scene he said at last father i will not make a scene but i must do something i promise you that i will not make a scene but i must go down to the drawing-room in these clothes in these clothes he repeated 
there was something in his look which conveyed a sense of the inevitable and agnes watched him descend the stairs she followed him slowly catching at the banister leaning against the wall she noticed that his step was heavy and irresolute and hoped he would refrain but he went on step after step end of agnes lehan's chapter four recording by james carson